Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. On today's program, we'll look at two aspects of the recently announced federal directive for protections for transgender students. But up front, Baltimore police officer Edward Nero was acquitted of charges yesterday for his role in the arrest and death of Freddie Gray. Robert Lang, a reporter with WBAL Radio and former state capitol reporter for WITF's Radio Pennsylvania, joins me to provide an update and some insight. Rob, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Good to join you again. Hey, I wanted to talk with you today about this uh, because, of course, Baltimore is so close to central PA. We have so many people who have ties to Maryland and Baltimore. A lot of people commute from central Absolutely. PA to Baltimore every day. But, of course, the events of last year that got uh, national attention. Now, first of all, let's start with Officer Nero. Provide some background. What was he accused of doing? Officer Edward Nero was one of the three officers uh, who were involved in Freddie Gray's arrest, um, and he was charged with uh, assault, two counts of misconduct in office, and reckless endangerment. Basically, the prosecution alleged that the arrest was illegal, and the um, any physical contact that Officer Nero had with him was Ill- amounted to an assault, and because he committed assault, one count of misconduct. The second second part of the charge, and this is also related to the charges against three other officers who were involved in checking on Freddie Gray, was reckless endangerment, failing to put Freddie Gray into a seatbelt, um, and that caused his injuries and that ultimately led to his death on the ride in the police van from, uh, from Gilmore Homes, where he was arrested, to the Western District Precinct, just a few miles, but the ride took uh, maybe about 30 minutes, um, and as the van made various stops, and uh, so he he was charged with that, and he was acquitted on all charges. All right, well, let's talk about that. Uh, Officer Nero opted for a judge to hear the case rather than a judge. Uh, right, Judge Barry Williams, who is an African-American, by the way. Right. What did the judge say in his ruling? Well, the first thing the judge didn't say is he did not question whether the arrest was legal or illegal. He did say, though, that Officer Nero placed uh, had no significant role in it, um, and he based that on two prosecution witnesses. One of them, one of the accused officers, another accused officer who was forced to testify uh, but offered limited immunity, Officer Garrett Miller. And it was Officer Garrett Miller who testified a week ago Monday who said that uh, it was he, not Officer Nero, who put the handcuffs on Freddie Gray, who put the leg shackles on Freddie Gray, who put Freddie Gray to the ground. At the time, they were bike patrol officers. Um, They were pursuing Freddie Gray, uh, Nero and Miller were. Uh, Miller caught up with, uh, was actually got off his bike and was chasing Freddie Gray on foot. He ultimately got to Freddie Gray, tackled him to the ground uh, by a handicap ramp uh, at that first stop near Gilmore Homes, where where Freddie Gray lived. And um, he told Officer Nero, go get my bike. uh, He didn't even say that, uh, he didn't say... Nero didn't even ask, do you need help? Nero assumed he would need help. He said, go get my bike, and he did. Um, His only physical contact with Freddie Gray came at the second stop the van made, in which Freddie Gray was taken out of the van, and they put flex cuffs and leg shackles on him, and Nero helped put him back into the van. So basically, Judge Williams said he had played no part in the arrest, therefore couldn't be charged with assault. And he also cited another prosecution witness, and it was somebody from the opposite end, Brandon Ross, who was a friend of Freddie Grays and also took video of the arrest. And Mr. Ross said, and he showed the video, said uh, clearly said that it was Officer Miller who handled the arrest, not Officer Nero. 
Uh, Rob, Baltimore had several nights of riots last year after the Freddie Gray arrest. Uh, many from across... Freddie Gray's funeral. It was after Freddie Oh, Freddie after Gray's the funeral. funeral. Okay. Yeah. Uh, many from across the country were watching to see what the reaction would be after this not guilty verdict. Now, the word I've heard yesterday and today is, most often anyway, is measured. What was the situation in the city last night? Um, basically, it was very calm in the city. Um, all of any kind of uh, unrest, and, and I, I would hesitate to describe it as unrest. It was just protesters. There were maybe about a dozen protesters outside the courthouse after the verdict was read. Uh, they chanted. Uh, the, uh, there were uniformed sheriff's deputies and sheriff's deputies in tactical gear surrounding the courthouse. They were uh, in charge of security at the courthouse. Now, at one point, uh, Officer Nero's family, first his brother, who uh, looks very much like him, and then his father left the court, and the protesters followed them to the parking garage, thinking that uh, the officer Nero's younger brother was, in fact, Officer Nero. Well, he wasn't. Um, and then there was also uh, this a similar incident uh, for, with uh, Officer Nero's father, and Officer Nero's father telling Megyn Kelly on Fox News last night that that whole situation was scary. Um, there was a brief protest uh, not far uh, uh, back in West Baltimore at Penn North. That was the epicenter of the riots. That's where. Uh, the CVS was set on fire, uh, the drugstore that has since been rebuilt, um, and you saw those pictures all over the world. But by, by and large, there was uh, little, if any, protests and a little, if any, trouble, no arrests as we far, unlike, say, in December when Officer William Porter's trial ended in a mistrial uh, with a hung jury. There was uh, some clashes at the courthouse, but even there, the protests were very measured. They lasted just a few hours, and uh, by the time the 11 o'clock news rolled around, some of my TV colleagues were doing their live shots, they were standing on, you know, in an empty street corner, no protests or anything like that. You know, it's, it's this is such a far-ranging and broad question that it's difficult to answer, but I'll ask it anyway. Yeah. What, what's the mood of the city? I mean, is it on edge? Is it calm? You said it's calm, but I, I mean, how would you describe I, it? I have to say, it really depends on where you live. There are people in Freddie Gray's neighborhood who are expecting a conviction. They were disappointed with what happened yesterday, but they were not surprised. One of the um, most interesting reactions I, uh, we got yesterday was from Billy Murphy Jr. Billy Murphy Jr. is uh, the lawyer for the Freddie Gray's uh, for Freddie Gray's family, and he is considered an elder statesman in uh, in the Baltimore legal community. A prominent African American attorney was a former judge. Um, he praised Judge Williams for the verdict for the measured verdict. He said he he praised Judge Williams for basing his decision on the law and the evidence, and not on the pressure of some in the black community who would want a conviction regardless of that evidence. And I found that to be very interesting. If you want to compare Billy Murphy to someone in the Harrisburg legal community, think maybe Bill Kostopoulos is probably mm -hmm. the best way to the best way to describe him. Mm -hmm. So, you know, no real incidents last night, some right. anger, some protest. Yeah. What, what was different this time? I think I think there is some of this is um, in the on the part of the community is they're letting the system go through, uh, you know, work its way around. A lot of the protests last year and a lot of the, you know, I, I even talked to one of Freddie Gray's friends after the Porter trial who said that, you know, a lot of the protesters came from outside of Baltimore and they used it as an opportunity to uh, to make a name for themselves. And uh, a lot of these people didn't know Freddie Gray. And so it, it, this particular trial wasn't really on the the national radar of, of the national activists uh, who, who would come into, came into Baltimore last year after 
after uh, Freddie Gray's arrest and then after his death, and then of course led to uh, led to the unrest last year. And it wasn't solely the activists' fault. I mean, some of the unrest was basically people sensing an opportunity, uh, you know, to to make crimes, to loot storms, uh, to break windows, and you didn't have that uh, after Officer Porter. And you certainly didn't have that this time. Now the next trial should be a little more um, interesting in terms of those who are watching this, and I think there's more at stake in this trial. That is for Officer Caesar Goodson, who is the driver of the police van. Now, he is uh, the oldest of the six officers. He's a 17-year veteran of the police department. He also has the most serious charges, including second-degree murder, depraved heart. Um, Officer Miller, in his testimony uh, at Nero's trial, and none of that can be used in his own trial in July, but also uh, in a statement that uh, Officer Nero gave to uh, officer uh, to internal affairs investigators, which was read in court, everyone pointed to that Officer Nero, or rather Officer Goodson, the van driver, was responsible for uh, Freddie Gray's death because he failed to seatbelt, put Freddie Gray in a seatbelt. And so there are a lot of people who are predicting there is going to be a conviction on something for Officer Goodson, and his charges include second-degree assault, involuntary man, or second-degree murder, depraved heart, second-degree assault, uh, involuntary manslaughter, and reckless endangerment and misconduct. And that trial is uh, scheduled to start in uh, two weeks, and as you June said, yes, uh, the uh, the most significant of the, of, of the trials out there. Um, and will that one get natu- uh, national attention? You know, you talked about some of the activists from around the country. I, I, you know, I, it remains to be seen. It's going to happen in the summer. Uh, the trial is going to take place uh, probably, uh, as far as we know, that is going to be a jury trial. Uh, there has been no indication that uh, from Officer Goodson's attorneys that they're going opting for a bench trial. One of the challenging parts of covering this is the judge has imposed a gag order on all parties. And so um, we don't find out what, mo- you know, unless they file motions in court, you find that on the court website, or you formally find out by going to a court hearing of the request of the bench trial, uh, of a bench trial, you know, at a, at a hearing in court, if that's going to happen. Uh, you know, it remains to be seen whether the national activists will come to Baltimore for that. I'm certainly a lot more people are going to be watching, uh, watching that trial, um, and, uh, you know, and to a lesser extent, the national media. And, and there's a, you know, there is a great contrast between the way the national media covers us and those of us in the local media. I mean, it's, it's always portrayed in the national media, particularly the cable networks, as Baltimore is a city on edge uh, waiting yeah. for this verdict. And if there's, uh, if there's not a verdict, you know, if there's, a, if there's an acquittal, there's going to be unrest. And, and they, one of the complaints I, I, I heard from a police official and from others is that CNN in particular was showing uh, footage of last year's riots and Marilyn Mosby's statement last year when she announced the charges. And, and that was, you know, trying to gin up things and, and nothing, you know, nothing happened. Hmm. Robert Lang is reporter with WBAL Radio in Baltimore, and he was former WITF Radio Pennsylvania State Capitol reporter. Rob, thank you very much for providing the insight. Glad to do it, Scott. Be well. See ya. Uh, You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. A federal directive was issued earlier this month to provide protection from discrimination against transgender students in American schools. Many have focused solely on which restrooms transgender students may use, but this goes beyond the bathroom issue, touching upon privacy rights, education records, and sex-segregated athletics, giving transgender students the right to identify in school as they choose. We'll explore two aspects of the issue on today's program. First, 
First, the Pennsylvania Youth Congress, an LGBT organization for young people, has launched a project called Dignity for All that includes guidelines for schools to adopt. Joining us is Jason Landau Goodman, executive director of the Pennsylvania Youth Congress. Mr. Goodman, thank you very much for being with us today. Good morning. Glad to be here. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. Okay, it's 11 days later, but I wanted to get your thoughts on the directive that came from the Obama administration on May 13th. Well, it's certainly an incredible move by the federal government to issue this guidance. Um, It does not have the power of law. It is rather clarifying what um, they interpret Title IX to provide protections for students based on their gender identity and expression. Um, It sends a clear signal um, in our education systems that transgender students have access to a full education and all the opportunities and accessibilities that are necessary to enjoy that education. Title IX, explain quickly if you would or briefly if you would. Sure. So that is a federal law that outlaws discrimination on the basis of sex um, for any um, publicly funded, federally funded um, educational institutions. So um, they have interpreted as the Department of Education, Department of Justice, that gender identity and expression is a protected class under sex stereotyping, because that's really the root of sex discrimination is the idea of what makes someone masculine or feminine. And so unraveling that and saying that, well, sex, gender, all of it is you know closely related, that gender identity protection is a protected class from discrimination. Now, your organization uh, devised guidelines for Pennsylvania schools. Tell me how uh, these guidelines were developed. Sure. So we looked at um, policies that have been adopted in Pennsylvania. We've seen um, the first five known policies in Pennsylvania formally adopted in the past few weeks. Five school districts, mm-hmm. all in southeastern Pennsylvania, by the Correct. way. Correct. Um, my hometown of Lower Marion unanimously adopted theirs last week. All of these school districts have been unanimously adopting them that have been addressing it. But it really is reflecting what has been going on in practice for many years. School districts um, certainly realize their duty and responsibility to provide um, access to education for all students. And if there's a barrier to get out that barrier so that all students can thrive. And so um, recognizing that gender identity, um, you know, accommodations are important to have in schools and the systems that we currently have. Um, You know, we are now at the place where we're rooting this in policy. And so we took what has been adopted in Pennsylvania, looking at um, other school districts across the country, and put together um, a really good package that will work really great for Pennsylvania schools. Um, And we've been contacted by so many school districts, um, really over the years, but certainly in the past uh, week or so, about wanting to take proactive action um, now that there is this backing from these federal guidelines. So, um, you know, we put together this um, policy and have made it publicly accessible online so that across the 500 school districts, school administrators and school board members can really um, have information at their fingertips about what is the status of the law in Pennsylvania and what they can do about it. Now, much of the attention uh, to this issue came about nationally after North Carolina passed a bill that many have referred to as a bathroom bill. Uh, That law said that uh, in North Carolina, a person would have to use the restroom of their assigned sex at birth. Before talking about restrooms, one thing I want to make sure that uh, our audience realizes is this directive and the guidelines that we're discussing today are about much, much more restrooms. The use of restrooms is just a small part of it. 
Absolutely. Um, the guidelines um, issued by the United States Department of Education, Department of Justice, outline everything from respecting an individual's pronouns and a firm name, um, and that includes on documentation, includes harassment, discrimination, uh, all sorts of aspects of a, of a student's life. Um, and yes, that does include access to bathrooms and locker rooms, just you know, as any other student um, needs to have access to those facilities. So, um, but this really isn't not about bathrooms. This is about so much more. This is about essentially. Um, the acceptance of transgender people in our society. Um, it's about unraveling, um, you know, what is really going on when we're talking about privacy. Because, yes, we want privacy for all people. Um, that's why we have bathrooms. Um, but really, you know, we're talking about um, making sure transgender students have um, a safe and ac- safe and full access to educational opportunities. How frustrating is it that much of the focus has been on restrooms? Well, transgender people did not ask for this uh, conversation to take place. It's often, you know, it's non-trans people, cisgender people who are bringing in this obsession with bathrooms. And certainly we have to talk about this and root these conversations in love and compassion, understanding. Um, So really we get the heart of what we're talking about, which is education on transgender people, on gender in general, Um, you know, when we have, you know, bathrooms, you know, they have stalls, you know, there we can get into the whole privacy concern um, aspect and I will of bathrooms. In just a few minutes. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, but uh, you know, we we really have to open up this conversation more about bathrooms. And we will in just a few minutes. By the way, want to let our listeners know that if you would like to participate in our conversation today, our guest is Jason Landau Goodman, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Youth Congress. We're talking about guidelines that uh, they're offering to the top 50, I say top, the, the biggest, 50 biggest school districts in Pennsylvania uh, after this federal directive from a few weeks ago having to do with uh, transgender students. Our phone number is one 800 You can send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on witf.org or on WITF's Facebook page. Again, the phone number is one 800 729 right, let's get the restroom part of it out of the way before we do talk about the, uh, the other aspects of this. What does the directive say? What do your guidelines say about the use of restrooms? So the the guidelines and certainly our model policy um, provide that students should be able to access the bathroom that corresponds to their lived gender identity. So should a student transition to, um, you know, be a man, then they should access the men's bathroom. Um, and so um, whoever... Um, you know, however, um, a person's sustained true gender identity comports um, to a gendered bathroom, they should have access to that space. Um, to suggest that they have separate but equal accommodations is not part of the conversation we should be having in a civil society. This is about access to, um, you know, something that we all use um, uh, every day, and uh, we should be making sure that it's um, accessible for students to um, have, you know, this this basic opportunity in their schools. But let's talk about uh, some of the objections to it as well. Um, you know, something else that Americans do have a right to is privacy. Now, let me bring up a couple of the things that uh, those who oppose uh, the directive have said. Uh, 
you know, there are those who say the potential for a sexual predator of the opposite sex to visit a bathroom, and I'm sure that that's something you find offensive, and there have been statistics since this came out that have shown that that's no more likely to happen than uh, if, you know, bathrooms were separate as it was. Uh, But there are are a small number of, one of the objections, there's a small number of transgender students, and even if there weren't, it violates the privacy of the others using the restroom. Your response to that? Um, A couple of responses. So um, first, again, we're talking about putting the baseline of um, our schools as inclusion rather than exclusion. Um, It's really easy. Most educators, medical professionals, anyone who deals with young people knows this to be true. Um, And that's... um, Certainly when we talk about, um, could you repeat the question? Sorry. Okay, well, I, there were, like I said, there were two, obje- the one, the two objections oh, you hear oh, right. about yeah. the sexual so, predators, and the other is that uh, other people uh, right. have a right to privacy as well. So um, dealing with, um, as you just said, with um, you know sexual assault and other issues that can occur in our country. Um, and Representative Deloge will be later on the program, actually works very tirelessly on these issues. Um, predators will exist out there, and we don't categorically say that, um, you know, we're going to, um, you know, target all men, target all women, target all, you know, uh, individuals of a class of people. Um, we, we go after the issues that are at hand. So let's talk about sexual assault. Let's talk about those issues. But we can't categorically say that it's um, happening on from a group of people who there's never been a documented case where this has happened. So um, and certainly for privacy, again, you go into a bathroom, there's stall separating, you know, you know, where people are doing their business and you're using the bathroom wrong. If you're worried about what body parts someone else has in the in the next door stall, um, again, you know we should be providing opportunities for those who may feel, um, you know, uncomfortable being around other people in a bathroom. I mean, that's why we should be pressing for single stall bathrooms to be available to anyone, regardless of an issue. Um, and that's what actually our guidelines provide: is that regardless of an issue, if you need to have more privacy in a locker room or bathroom, that should be provided to you as a reasonable accommodation by a school. But to say, no, we're going to exclude categorically an in, a group of people um, just from the moment we have this conversation, that's not where we're moving as a society, and that's not where we should be if we're saying that we're providing inclusive and welcoming schools. Let's take a phone call from Tom and Lit. It's Tom, you're on the air. Yes, thank you very much for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. I, I just think this whole conversation is so ridiculous. You know, sexual identity. If you if you're a man, go to a man's room. If you're a woman, go to a woman's room. There's so many more issues in the world: people starving, wars. Uh, why are we talking about this? If, you, if your if your sexual identity is whatever it may be, why does it matter? And I'll take my uh, call off here. All right. Thank you very much for for your call. A lot of people have made this argument that. Um, you know, there are so many issues, large issues that we're dealing with, significant issues dealing with in the country. But I would imagine for those in the LGBT community and uh, transgender individuals in particular, this is a big deal. Absolutely. And I actually agree with the caller's um, comments that we should be not dealing with this issue. We should be moving on to real issues that are going on in our world. Um that, um, you know, are really devastating. So uh, I think, again, um, you know, we need to have a conversation about what gender is and what transgender, being transgender is, because that, I think, will alleviate some of the concerns of, okay, you know, 
you are who you are and you need to use the bathroom. Um, end of story. You need to access, you know, safe spaces and schools and have you know reasonable accommodations made on whatever issues done but when we're talking about um gender uh gender identity and mm -hmm. uh talking about the, the the use of restrooms um but the caller made a comment about oh yes other issues that are going on so it's actually you know there's we're working in a school district supporting students in a school district in western pennsylvania and there are hundreds of parents coming out um you won't really hear students you know coming out in masses about this issue but you have lots of parents um concerned again with this issue of privacy and bringing up all these issues and this school district has been facing a number of student suicides and they're they're they it just has taken up so much time we should be talking about mental health access we should be talking about so many more important issues that are going on in our school district than, um, you know, than these issues. However, if the battle is being brought to exclude and discriminate against a, 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 a group of individuals in a school, then we do have to talk about it. And we do have to address the issues that are underlying this conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this conversation, we may not have had this conversation as a society 10 years ago. Oh, I'm sure we wouldn't have had it 10 years ago, maybe even five years ago. What's changed? Um, I think the visibility of transgender people and gender expansive people. I think the, um, as we've had more of this visibility, people have been coming out and feeling more affirmed in their communities. It's, it's really hard, you know, if we look at the LGB community, you know, people tend to know someone who is gay. Um, you know, that has now occurred over the past 15 years. And now people are starting to know transgender people because they're able to come out and be affirmed in their lived experiences. And so uh, that I think is helping a tremendous amount that you're having this um, understanding and, and uh, education put out there. That being said, that's going to come with folks who are not, who, who do not have access or have not uh, experienced that education yet. So um, that's why we're at this, you know, moment where we're having these critical conversations. Hey, we mentioned that uh, restroom use is just one part of this. Let's talk about uh, some of the other issues, the, the guidelines and also the directive. What other areas does it cover? So um, certainly, as I mentioned before, documentation, official school records, um, making sure harassment does not occur on the basis of gender identity expression so students are not targeted for, um, you know, relentless um, harassment uh, based on who they are. Um, certainly, uh, their access to uh, education. I mean, these are basic things, but they have not been spelled out in many states um, and certainly at the federal level. So that's that makes this a, a very big deal. So however, um, you know, discrimination, harassment are uh, out there in our in our school system. Um, when those opportunities arise, it is not allowed to do that on the basis of gender identity or expression. You know, one area that uh, I'm a little surprised hasn't gotten more attention is students who participate in athletics. Mm -hmm. That uh, under this directive, that uh, students who play on a team of their sex identity, that's the team they will play with. Uh, in other words, someone who was born a male uh, will play can play on the uh, female teams, field hockey or uh, basketball or any any of those things. Talk about that because that would be that would be a major change for a lot of people. Well, the PIAA actually has issued um, mixed gender um, athletic 
competition guidelines um, in 2014. Um, of our concern is actually they included um, a clause that says the principal shall have the authority to de decide a student's gender, um, which can be both you know a good thing and a concerning thing. Um, but really, uh, you know, students who are living as a certain, you know, as a in, in a gender um, and, uh, you know, maybe on hormones, they may, you know, be just socially, I mean, certainly socially, they are living um, as a gender that they should be able to comport with in intramural athletics, in interscholastic athletics. Um, I mean, again, we're talking about inclusion and, you know, we're, that, I mean, again, that that's where we're at right now. <laughs> But doesn't that have the potential, though, for there not being exclusive sex teams? I mean, that there would not, in the future, a boys' team, a girls' team in a middle school or a high school. Um, I think we'll get to that conversation um, eventually to, you know, understand, you know, how we um, create our athletic systems. But we need to make sure, again, that they're accessible um, for students who are identifying with the gender that that sport is set up with. And certainly there's a number of sports that are um, mixed gender sports. Um, you know, if there's not, and this comes from Title IX, if there's not a sufficient um, ability for um, an independent program to create it for a gender in a certain sport, well, then they can come together if the student is able, you know, to participate in that um, athletic team. Does that happen in Pennsylvania now? Um, to my understanding, that that's what the regulations provide for. Again, that's the mixed gender uh, guidelines that the um, the rules that came out from PIA in 2014. But are that you're aware of? Are there schools that maybe don't have enough players uh, to, you know, field uh, sex exclusive teams where they do have uh, mixed sex teams? I mean, we just saw the wonderful little league from Philadelphia. Um, you know, who had um, although not a school team though, right? Um, so I think you're, you'll you find situations like that across the state. Mm -hmm. um, you something you mentioned there that. Uh, got my attention when you were saying that the PAAA rules say that the principal has to decide. And this goes back to something in the directive and also the guidelines. Uh, there are a lot of rules here about what educators can do as far as how they refer to transgender students. Uh, they, they, under these rules, they must identify, or excuse me, they must refer to the students by the sex in which they identify with, correct? Uh, that is correct. Um, and to do so otherwise would be harassment and discrimination and violation of a student's privacy to, to continue to out a student in, inappropriately um, to, um, you know, it, it potentially causes them harm um, in so many different ways to um, to continue to address someone with um, the incorrect pronouns, with their incorrect name. Um, it's just not something that schools should be in the business of doing is discrimination and harassment. But, you know, one of the when I read that uh, guideline, I, I thought to myself, well, doesn't that place a burden on the school? I mean, how does that actually occur that a, a teacher, uh, a principal, uh, how that student wants to be identified? Um, it really is not much of a burden. You Schools have systems, you know, they log in student names. Um, our guidelines provide for how to make that an easy transition, you know, when a student does transition to make sure that's reflected on documents, you know, because this ranges from anything from, you know, what roll call list is provided for a, a substitute teacher to, um, you know, how to address students in the classroom. And so we have policies and guidelines on so many different issues because we recognize that certain groups of students have certain accommodations that we need to provide. For example, homeless students. Um, we have specific um, guidelines that are provided um, that 
almost all school districts across the state have adopted. Um, you know, certainly students with um, who are HIV positive, there are policies in school districts for that. And so we recognize that there is stigma attached to um, and, and barriers presented for certain students and that schools must be in the position to make sure those barriers are lifted so that all students have access to an education and so they can thrive. Just so everyone understands, though, if there is a student who uh, has not legally changed their name, you know, even that the say uh, someone who their assigned sex at birth was male, uh, but their sexual identity now is female, they call themselves by what we would consider a female name, um, but that name has not been legally changed. If the student, or excuse me, the teacher's reading roll call and reads that name assigned at birth, uh, it's not le- it's not legally changed. So uh, help me understand this one. Well, I mean, schools are not. They're not obligated to um, conform to, you know, something uh, to to state a birth name, you know, an attendance, you know, yes, maybe on certain government documentation, but it is within their right and certainly now backed up by these federal guidelines. And certainly if they would adopt the model policy we presented that they should be respecting an individual's um, name and their pronouns, um, that sets a floor, not the ceiling. Um, and so, um, you know, it's very easy to provide that kind of. Um, accommodation. Um, again, it's just updating their systems. But the first time, first day of school, uh, student comes in and the name assigned at birth uh, mm-hmm. was Robert. So, and and, and mm-hmm. the teacher reads Robert. Uh, I guess what I'm picturing is the student would say, "Well, I, I, you know, call myself, um, you know, Rachel now." Um, is that how it happens, or what? Yeah, and again, this has been happening for many years without issue in num- at many, many school districts. Um, and now we're just having clarification and policy. But um, usually, it's a private conversation, one on one, with the school administrator, with individual teachers at the beginning of year when a transition is taking place, and that is just something that is um, something that should and easily be done. Mm-hmm. All right, let's take a phone call from Gunther in Mechanicsburg. Gunther, you're on the air. Good morning. Um, I wanted to comment on the co-ed sports teams. I had gone to a high school that um, had three straight, they were straight males on the field hockey team in Pennsylvania, obviously, and, um, you know, they had no issues, and the PIAA just made, you know, reasonable um, accommodations for them. So having having sports teams of men, women, um, of either sex is just, um, you know, integrated now and, and totally acceptable. Um, so I don't see any problem with, with that in the future or, you know, ad- adapting to that. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you very much for your call. Um, you know, he didn't say whether those uh, three uh, were transgender students or not, but I, I guess under these guidelines, it doesn't matter. Right. And we're not even talking about mixed gender integration in athletics through these policies. Specifically, we're just talking about access for students who are um, living, you know, who are a certain gender um, to have that align with um, the um, participation in, in all aspects of student life. We have an email here from Joe Ask a few years ago, my school district passed a directive that boys are not eligible to participate in girls athletics for safety reasons. Are they in violation? Um, I think they'd have to talk with a lawyer, but I think there's certainly, you know, um, concern about what they mean by, you know, is it, are they designating individuals by sex in that directive? Are they designating people by gender? Um, are they allowing for 
um, you know, would they be saying that a transgender male student um, is unable to, you know, participate in field hockey? You know, and then you have to look at the other guidelines that are around like PIAA and and um, certainly any, um, you know, state or federal laws like Title IX. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there is probably, you know, an area of concern in that, that policy. As you said, uh, this is a directive that it is not something that has been uh, you know, passed by the Congress. In fact, that's one of the things we're going to talk about with uh, Representative Delosier coming up in a few minutes. But uh, the Obama administration has made it clear that there is a possibility that if school districts don't comply, that they could lose some federal funding. Now, from what I have read and seen, you're probably in a better position to tell me, uh, it seems as though Pennsylvania school districts are complying without question. Yes. Um, so we receive over a billion dollars in federal funding to our school districts. Um, that's a number from the Department of Education. And uh, when we surveyed, when these guidelines came out from the Department of Education, Department of Justice, we found over 40 um, spokespeople and superintendents providing commentary in, in newspapers throughout the Commonwealth. And not one said they would defy these guidelines. Um, you know, this can translate to millions of dollars for school districts. And there are many of them already providing these reasonable accommodations for transgender students. So what's next? What so happens next? So, um, you know, it's interesting. The The letter that was sent from the House of Representatives, um, you know, had a, brought up a number of issues. But one of them was that, you know, this is federal overreach and that school uh, that school policy should be set at the local level. So, yes, let's have the conversation at the local level. Um, so I think we're going to be seeing a number of schools adopt these policies. We have the model policy. Um, we hope that the Pennsylvania School Boards Association, the Pennsylvania Department of Education and other um, education stakeholders will come to the table around affirming trans gender students and really getting the, the message out there. So I think we're going to be looking at a lot of education um, in the future um, and certainly rooting that in, in policy, these protections. Jason Landau-Goodman is executive director of the Pennsylvania Youth Congress. Jason, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Nearly 100 Pennsylvania Republican state lawmakers have written a letter to President Obama objecting to the federal directive designed to protect transgender students against discrimination, and some say it would give them more rights. Republican State Representative Cheryl Delosier of Cumberland County is one of those who signed the letter to the president, and she joins us now. Representative Delosier, thank you very much for joining us today. Certainly. Glad to be here. Let me tell our listeners again, we still have open lines. If you'd like to give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, 1-800-729-7532. All right, Representative Delosier, what were the objections that uh, you have and the others uh, in, you know, as I said, nearly 100 uh, in the letter to the president? Well, I can uh, speak for myself in, this, uh, in reading the letter and, and in sending it out primarily was uh, the overreach from the, the federal government. Um, Obama's decree, you know, interferes what uh, should be legally handled by our school districts and um, those that know um, the parents and the students the best. And uh, a decree from our federal government, a mandate saying, you know, and threatening to withdraw federal funds, um, I think is an overreach and something that should be handled on the local level. So uh, as, as far as your main objection and the main objection of those who, who signed the letter is that it is a government thing, that uh, the Obama administration is doing something that, that they shouldn't be doing. 
Correct. I mean, when we talk about, and we talk many times, you know, we have 500 school districts in the state of Pennsylvania, and um, each and every one of them are, you know, we have some small ones like our Camp Hill right here. We have large ones like CV. Um, but each and every one of them have a, a, board, a school board that was elected to decide what is best for their school district. Um, certainly there are restrictions and requirements from our federal government and from our state government in, in curriculum, in what our students should be learning, um, and those types of things. But when it comes to these very personal, very um, much of an emotional um, dealing with someone's safety, someone's ability to um, do their schoolwork and, and have a productive um, high school career or, or, or any grade that they are in, um, it, you know, that is a very much, in my opinion, a decision that our local folks should be making. Um, and there are some state laws, you know, in, in other states that have tried to do it on the state level. Um, and in some cases, you do need to have some some uh, commonality across the state if, if we're going to make some of these changes. But for the most part, you know, I want my school board in Mechanicsburg School District, um, they understand what's happening in their school district. They understand the parents um, and the wishes, and, and in all honesty, how many students it affects uh, within the district, because um, it is a minority. It is a small grouping um, of individuals. And, and do I want anyone discriminated against? Absolutely not. But I also want those that know them best um, to make set policies that will affect them. Well, let's talk about that for just a moment. You say it is a small number. And, uh, you know, the more I read about it, uh, you know, we're talking about a small number uh, in comparison to, uh, you know, the, 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 the student body as a, as a whole. But should that matter, even if there's one student? Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I, I think that, as I said, I don't believe anybody should be discriminated against uh, for any reason. Um, you know, our school life, we've worked very, very hard in many capacities to stop bullying, to stop um, the antagonism, to stop, you know, just because someone's different does not make them a bad person. So, no, absolutely not. Um, everyone should be treated with respect. Um, the ability to understand what is best for that individual, again, I think comes down to the fact that the people that know that individual and that family and the and the situation the best should be the ones making that decision, not our president that doesn't have any clue what's happening in um, Lower Allen Township or Mechanicsburg School District or West Shore School District. Um, I think it should be up to um, those that, that can have that one-on-one -on -one conversation with that family, with that student, or, or if it's more than one student, um, the ability to have that conversation. And what is it that you want? What is it that makes you comfortable? What does make you feel like you're respected and you have the ability to have a good education and, and to live your life the way you, you choose. You know, something, though, that uh, you, you mentioned a little bit earlier, that the, the federal government, that certainly school districts do have to go by some federal guidelines. But, you know, something that the, the federal government does have over schools in Pennsylvania and everywhere else is that money. Absolutely. And uh, there has been some talk that uh, federal funds will will be withheld if there are states are there, or school districts across the state that don't comply with this. What do you say about that? Well, I think that that is a threat that they, they do know they have that money. And as the last um, speaker mentioned, you know, uh, over a billion dollars of federal funds to Pennsylvania, that, that's a big chunk of, of money. School districts are, uh, in many cases, are dealing with 
um, balancing their budgets. And if they have that threat hanging over them, are they going to be nervous about it and, and afraid that if they make the wrong move that they're, they're going to uh, no longer see their federal funds? Absolutely. But I also think that that leads to the conversation as to the fact that, um, you know, education. Um, many times, even with the bills that we have had here at the state on, on other issues, but dealing with um, uh, discrimination, a lot of it does come down to dis to education. What are we talking about? Um, you know, I've had people ask me, "What is transgender? What is sexual, you know, identification? What is um, gender identity?" You know, these are words that we've used, but in many cases, people I've had people asking me, "I don't understand what that means. Like, what does that mean um, when someone says I am this?" Um, and so, in a lot of cases, you know, we have our superintendents, we have our school boards, we have our parents. Um, that in many cases are not don't know what exactly is um, being described. What is you know we're using these words, um, and I think a lot of it has to be that education on the ground level, um, at the school level. What is um, the policy that we're talking about? The the president is saying you will or will not do this, and you will comply, or else I'm going to take away your funds. Um, certainly, does that have a very big hammer? Absolutely, because school districts are terrified of losing that do those dollars. Let's take a phone call from Sam, who is uh, driving through the area. Sam, you're on the air. Good morning. I would like to know how this is going to be handled whenever students and parents start filing lawsuits that their daughters have been uh, have not had their privacy protected in locker rooms and restrooms. Uh, is that a valid concern? And, and would those people have a leg to stand on when they're allowing guys that uh, identify uh, with the females to have access to, to these areas and, and all of a sudden the school districts that should be providing privacy for the students can no longer do that. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Representative, I don't know if you can answer that or not. <laughs> well, I can. I'm not be, I am not an attorney, um, and certainly that would be a legal question, and it would also depend on what is put into place and, and what is the wording. You know, as, as we write legislation time and time again, you know, one word can change the meaning or, or the intent of a, of a piece of legislation, or, you know, when these local um, schools try to comply with what the president has, has demanded, um, I think that you will see a, a variation. You will see some districts writing, uh, you know, putting something into policy or, or action um, that's very different than the next school district. Um, and so to answer your question, I think that it is a concern. Um, I think it, it, privacy is absolutely a concern and should be a concern. We certainly want our young women and, and our young men to, to have that privacy. It's expected. It's a right that we do have um, to expect that. But I believe that the interpretation of each individual um, school district and how they handle it will be different. Let's go to Sherry and Carlisle. Sherry, you're on the air. Um, hello. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Um, I have a question. What is, um, it, it seems to me, we've just had a situation here in central Pennsylvania where a school district decided that a student could not attend their prom because they wore a tuxedo as opposed to a dress. Um, and so we have school boards that make decisions um, about students' gender expression um, that are, are quite harmful, actually. And so it seems to me that it is the job of the federal government then to say, because the federal government is also us, um, to, to make the statement that school schools need to be responsive to these issues and to these concerns. Um, so my question is, 
you know, uh, why does the federal government not have that right in the same way that it has made those sorts of decisions with, in regards to issues of race? Mm-hmm. Um, to, to protect all of our students, um, hey, not just the majority of our students. Sure. Thank you. Thank you very much for your call. Now, one clarification, that mm-hmm. student with uh, the, the tuxedo and the prom, that was right. Bishop McDevitt, not a school district, a private school, private Correct. religious school. But right. her point is still a good one and a legitimate question. Obviously, and one of the questions I was going to ask you, Representative Delosier, is that um, the Obama administration sees an issue and apparently believes that if they don't take the federal, uh, the federal government doesn't hand down this directive, that they, I don't know, I don't know if I want to use the word trust or not, but that uh, there will be school districts across the, the country that will not, uh, you know, take this directive or uh, guard against discrimination. Well, I guess uh, to a point, yes, they are they are uh, taking their statement and making it um, something that should happen. Um, they're being a, a bully about it to a point because they're saying you will do it the way I believe you should do it. Um, and the president has his philosophy as to how it should happen. And I guess that that is where I come back to a little bit of what I said before in the sense that President Obama does not know what happens in the West Shore School District. President Obama does not know what happens um, in, in Mechanicsburg. Um, and, and I believe that those are the ones that should be making the decision. Should we be having this discussion? Absolutely. Um, and, and as the, the previous uh, speaker mentioned, as to the fact that, you know, he may mention that 40 superintendents had said they would comply. Great. I, I'm glad they're having the conversation. I'm not, all I'm saying is that our president should not be threatening re- removing federal funds if we don't have that conversation right now. Um, and so in some neighborhoods or some communities, um, it is an education process. It is a process that we need to take care of. And, you know, like I said, discrimination should always be addressed. There should be no reason to have discrimination. But there also needs to be, in many cases, a learning curve. There has to be education and there has to be that dialogue to understand what it is that we're actually asking for. In the case of of the tuxedo, you know, you are correct in in stating, you know, it was a private school um, that has the ability to make their decisions. I don't necessarily agree with their decisions in that in that regard, but they had the ability to do that. Um, and are they going to be forced to comply? You know, they are a private institution, and, and in many cases, can make their own decisions in that matter. I, you know, it's it's hard to get away from history, though. Um, we only have about a minute left, or so. I know that uh, we, you you don't have a lot of time this morning. Um, it's tough. It's tough to get away from history, where if we're not talking about sexual orientation or sexual identity, uh, you know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, we were talking in many areas of the country about uh, race, and mm-hmm. that there would Absolutely. be lo- local right. school districts. Uh, especially in the South, uh, would go out of their way to uh, discriminate against uh, African-American students. It's hard to make the comparison in some ways, but it's not in others. No, and you have a valid point, and I've even had that discussion is the sense of, you know, we have um, bills here that come through the state, and they talk about, well, you can't force someone to do something if they are a public business. And and my opinion has been the same as what you just said. It's like, well, if you didn't serve someone who uh, from the black community or from the Latino community or from, you know, uh, that would be a problem. You know, um, so you are a public business, and, and so we need to understand what that means. Um, and you're right. We have fought a lot of civil rights and, and a lot of um, ability to, to 
defend them. And, and like I said, discrimination is discrimination is discrimination. So um, we need to have this conversation. I just don't think we need to be bullied by the federal government with threats of removing federal dollars in order to have that conversation. Republican State Representative Cheryl Delosier of Cumberland County, thank you very much for being with us today. Absolutely. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about Pennsylvania tourism and Pennsylvania schools wasting money on transportation.